This week, Joshua Drew talks to us about his lifelong journey in compliance. First, a word from Nick Gallo about the ethics verse. Your network is your net worth. Neither are big enough. Hi, this is Nick, chief servant at Ethico and host of the ethics verse, the coolest place to be every Thursday at noon Eastern. The ethics verse is our weekly free webinar series where we invite the top minds in the ethics and compliance space to share their knowledge on topics that matter most to people on the front lines. These are not thinly veiled sales presentations. These are weekly sessions that help you elevate your impact and build an authentic culture of integrity with tactics on how to sustainably crowdsource risk intelligence at scale within your organization. Join the special community each week to build your network, earn free CEUs, win the hottest books in the ethics and compliance space, and gain insights you can implement immediately to expand your impact and reinforce your culture of integrity. You can continue to be the hero within your organization. Go to ethico.com cpn to book a demo, sign up for the ethics verse, and download the exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Now, I'm absolutely thrilled today to have with me Joshua Drew, proving that everyone in compliance is related by no less than six degrees of separation. I've known of Joshua for many years. He's now at Miller and Chevalier. Uh, Joshua, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I've known of your work for years as well. Uh, we're going to go into your background in uh, some detail, but you have worked with and for some of the most uh, interesting projects and assignments and companies who have gone through their own compliance journey. So um, could I start with asking you your professional background and your current role? Sure. I'm currently, as you mentioned, a member at Miller & Chevalier in the litigation group. Uh, after law school, I started with the Justice Department through the Honors Program and ultimately was with DOJ for 10 years, uh, both at Maine Justice in the, in the fraud section and as an AUSA in the District of New Jersey. Uh, and, and then after leaving government, I've had several in-house roles uh, all with companies that were facing DOJ enforcement actions. Uh, I was with a pharmaceutical company that was dealing with a False Claims Act case, uh, and then later at Hewlett-Packard and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise uh, during the time of their FCPA resolution, uh, and then joined uh, Vimplecom, which is now known as Vion, uh, and that company also had a, a major FCPA resolution and and post-resolution monitoring by DOJ and uh, an independent compliance monitor. Uh, and then uh, that brought me to Miller. When were you with Maine Justice? I was there from 1999 to 2003. So in some ways, the, the pre-modern era in the fraud section, things were really just changing at that time regarding FCPA enforcement. Uh, did you work with Peter Clark? I did. I know Peter very well. He was the head of the FCPA unit when I was there, which, uh, as, as your listeners probably know, and I'm sure you know, was much, much smaller. Uh, actually, my wife, who I met in the fraud section, is very close with Peter. She was part of his team, along with uh, Philip Urofsky. Uh, and, and there wasn't much more to the FCPA unit than that in the early 2000s. Uh, so I uh, was with a company 
that was under a monitorship with Peter's firm. So I got to know Peter um, in that role. He was not the monitor, but he was obviously a resource uh, to the monitor. And uh, I just, I rarely get the chance to visit with someone who worked with Peter. So uh, I see him as, as you said, maybe a precursor, but certainly a lot of what Peter did at the FCPA unit really led to some of the uh, uh, growth of the FCPA unit in cases. And frankly, I don't think Peter gets enough credit for that, but uh, he was a great resource to me when he was in private practice. Uh, So I was just wondering if you could say a few words about Peter. Peter's a delightful guy and a great lawyer. Uh, He, and I agree, he really laid the foundation for uh, much of the FCPA enforcement that, that grew later in the 2000s, you know, over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, he took the responsibilities of the fraud section incredibly seriously, uh, both in terms of providing expertise to U.S. attorney's offices uh, that had venue over FCPA cases, but also in terms of the international coordination efforts uh, through engaging with the working group at the OECD. So uh, he doesn't get as much credit as as he should. He really made a big difference in in building out those enforcement efforts when I was at the fraud section. Uh, Josh, I often talk to lawyers who have been AUSAs or worked in uh, offices of uh, across the United States. I often talk to former Maine Justice lawyers, but I rarely get to talk to someone who's been both. So I wanted to ask you if you could maybe explain to our audience the difference between working at Maine Justice and working in a U.S. attorney's office, or at least the U.S. attorney's office you worked with in New Jersey. It's an interesting question. Thank you. Uh, I thought the biggest difference comparing the two jobs, which, you know, at their core have the same mission, um, the biggest difference was that when you're a main justice prosecutor, you're always from out of town uh, and and you're coming into a district uh, where you're not known, um, you don't have any history. And that can make navigating the, you know, the grand jury, um, dealing with pretrial and probation, uh, appearing before the judges, uh Negotiating with the defense bar all is is more challenging because uh, you're not a uh, a known quantity in the district. You don't have those relationships um, with all those people and and entities. Uh, when I was in AUSA, I had you know I was a repeat customer. Uh, I had established relationships with all those those judges and arms of the court and the defense bar. And it really made practicing much more enjoyable because I was part of a a legal community in the district. What was the nature of your practice at the U.S. Attorney's Office? Was it white collar prosecution? Was it national security? Other, all of the above, none of the above? It was largely white collar economic crime uh, cases. uh, And I I did a fair amount of uh, public corruption uh, work during the end of my tenure, um, so it, it was a mix, but but primarily uh, in in the white collar vein. And so any type of um, mail fraud, wire fraud, uh, securities fraud, healthcare fraud, uh, tax, money laundering, 
uh, and then the and then the corruption statutes. Uh, Josh, you then moved to uh, the private sector and went to work in the corporate world. And you worked with two companies who had significant FCPA enforcement actions with uh, what I think could be characterized as some pretty egregious underlying facts. But you were part of the team that helped them get through that journey. And I wanted to start with HP. What was your role at HP? And then how did your professional background from the DOJ really help you in not only your role, but helping HP navigate the journey that they were on? Well, I, I joined HP right at the end of 2010, and the company uh, had just uh, started, received notice of a, a DOJ and SEC investigation of, of potential violations of the FCPA. Uh, so they were dealing with... Uh, those issues. And, and so partly I was hired to help manage um, the response to those investigations by the company uh, and also ultimately took on a, a role leading investigations. Uh, um, my DOJ background was, was really helpful for those responsibilities. Uh, I was able to help the company and it's very capable outside counsel um, deal with the ongoing DOJ investigation, which lasted several years uh, because of my experience having worked at, at DOJ and, you know, both in the fraud section and in a U.S. attorney's office. Uh, the general counsel at HP at the time was himself a former AUSA. So we had a, a good connection. Uh, and then in terms of, of shaping up the internal investigations process at the company, uh, I'm I'm biased. I think that DOJ uh, experience is the best training when it comes to leading investigations, and was so it was very valuable uh, in that in that role with HP. Uh, and the company was was very committed to overhauling its investigation process and improving it. So we added more internal lawyers. Uh, we created regional teams, so we sort of distributed down some of the decision-making and the internal investigations and uh, allowed the company to be more nimble. Um, and ultimately, we ended up tackling a, a, an issue that plagues a lot of large companies with extensive internal investigation process, which is uh, the time it takes to complete investigations. We we conducted this uh, sort of a modified Six Sigma process uh, and really were able to ratchet down and reduce the time it, it took to finish investigations, which had all sorts of benefits for the company. Josh, I talked to a fair number of lawyers in private practice who do external investigations and will occasionally report to the Department of Justice uh, when appropriate. And they, to a person, tell me the single most important thing they have is their credibility with their counterparts at the DOJ, whether that's in document retention, whether that is in information provided, whatever the situation may be. Is the same true for uh, a lawyer in-house doing internal investigations like you did at HP? I do think the same is true. Uh, so... You know, when you're doing internal investigations at a company, you have internal clients, essentially stakeholders who are interested in uh, the 
both the process and and then the substantive result of the investigation. And at the end of the day, and, and you know, it, it, it took me a moment to realize this when I went in house, but uh, you know, you, internal investigative teams need to be aware that most of the employees who are investigated are not going to end up uh, leaving the company. Uh, and, and so they may not be happy with uh, the result, but they need to have confidence that the internal investigative process has integrity, uh, that it's fair and objective. Uh, so, you know, nobody likes to be investigated, but at the end of the day, uh, they need to at least have confidence that they've been treated uh, fairly by the company. Uh, and, and so that's what we really strive for. And it is similar to, you know, maintaining credibility with DOJ uh, when reporting on investigative activities from an external investigation. Josh, you then took a move to a company formerly known as Vimplecom, now known as Vion. Uh, once again, a significant set of uh, underlying facts, a massive settlement, and a DPA and monitor in place. Uh, what intrigued you to take that job, number one? And then what were some of the either challenges or really successes you felt like you were able to bring as the CECO at Vion? Uh I was intrigued by the challenges at Vion, um, and there were also personal reasons that the job was attractive. Uh, my wife and I had had made a family decision that we wanted to live overseas, and and so we were looking for opportunities to do that. Um, but I, you know, I, I went into the recruiting process. I I clicked with the general counsel there, uh, and and ultimately. Uh, joined the company and it was uh, a great experience. We were there in Amsterdam as a family for four years uh, with our, our three then small children uh, and two cats uh, all, all made the move and, and live life on, on two wheels in Amsterdam. And professionally, it was a, a fantastic set of challenges. Uh, the DPA was in place. The monitor had not yet arrived. Uh, and the company uh, had reached a resolution relatively quickly as, as far as these cases go. And so there was quite a bit of uh, remediation and improvement to compliance and controls to be done. What were, um, let me, maybe, uh, I have worked with a monitor. So I understand that there can be challenges in working with a monitor. What do you, from the CECO perspective, what do you see as the role of a monitor in helping a company through the DPA process? So uh, the monitor has a couple of key imperatives, in my view. Uh, one is to ensure that the, the, the monitor and the, and the monitor's team are meeting all of the obligations and fulfilling all the responsibilities that are set forth in the resolution documents uh, and, and really doing that job as described in, you know, typically in attachment D uh, and, and doing it well. Uh, the monitor also uh, 
to be successful and to help the company be successful uh, should have a collaborative, uh, transparent, and constructive approach, uh, and and really have strong communication and <clears throat> um, kind of a, a, a very transparent agenda and no surprises. Uh, and and if the monitor comes to the engagement that way, and and so is is meeting the obligations as as defined in the resolution process and satisfying uh, the goals that the DOJ has for the monitorship, but also engaging in in a constructive and collaborative way with the company, uh, that leads to the best result. The you uh, you were successfully able to navigate the deferred prosecution agreement that uh, ended, and then you moved on to Miller Chevalier. Could you tell us about what led to the move to Miller? I got to know Miller because uh, the firm was counsel to Vimplecom, uh, and and so I I interacted with a number of of the lawyers at the firm over several years while I was was in house at at Vimplecom and Vion. Uh, and so really that was the most attractive thing about the firm for me is the, is the people. Uh, I got to know them well. They're very good lawyers, they're great people. Um, I mean, many of them are names you'd be familiar with. Uh, Kate Atkinson, Will Barry, Andy Wise, Mark Rashawn. Uh, and th- those are the type of people that I wanted to practice with. Uh, the firm also, you know, has practice areas that fit well with my experience. Very strong in FCPA work. Also do False Claims Act cases, uh, general litigation, white collar. Um, and I always like the firm's profile, you know, a bit smaller, um, strategically focused, um, really uh, uh, subject matter experts on, on many of the issues that arise out of a, a DC practice. Uh, so for all those reasons, it was really a, a, a no-brainer from my perspective. What is your role at Miller now? So I'm on, on the litigation team, uh, and and you know I I hope that it's really sort of bringing strength to strength that my skills and experience really complement uh, those of the firm. Um, you know, you mentioned monitorships and those challenges. Uh, you know, the firm has done a number of monitorships. I have experience dealing with monitors. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm looking to build on the, on the fine work that they've done and, and, and help, you know, with strategic growth that is a priority for the firm. Uh, I'd like to turn to some of the pronouncements we've had uh, really over the past year from the Department of Justice, and and maybe uh, have you uh, explain your understanding or help compliance prof- professionals. And I want to start with the speech Kenneth Polite gave in January of 2023. It had a great catchphrase that all of us have used, and that, of course, was the need for speed, the need for speed and self-disclosure, the need for speed in your investigation, the need for speed to turn over information to the Department of Justice. And it struck me that uh, if you accept all of those, that puts an incredible amount of pressure on a corporate compliance function to uh, uh, intake information, 
whether it's from a whistleblower, whether it's from uh, internal uh, controls, to assess, to pick up the phone and call someone like yourself, and then have someone like yourself do the investigation, consult with your client, and make a decision. And so maybe if we could start with that, um, how do you see kind of this need for speed playing out in the investigative realm? Uh, so the <clears throat> I think the key elements that were announced in that in that speech and and then are, are now part of DOJ policy were all largely consistent with longstanding uh, DOJ practice. Uh, you know there there are incentives, strong incentives now uh, for companies to to get to the bottom of potential misconduct, uh, and those incentives are, you know, were and after the Kenneth Polite speech still are tied to three main categories. Uh, you know, a, a voluntary self disclosure at the earliest possible time full cooperation with the, the DOJ investigation and timely and appropriate remediation of, of the issues identified. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there is intense pressure on uh, doing the internal investigation, doing it right. Uh, the, but, but, to to a large extent, the you know the requirement and the ex expectation for the the external law firm that's supporting the company uh, with that work has not fundamentally changed. The, there's a need to move quickly, understand the uh, understand the facts, and and be alert for opportunities for advocacy while cooperating. I think that the you hit on in your question one of the. Uh, important aspects of these, you know, continued emphasis from DOJ on the need for speed, which is that companies have to be set up internally so that they react appropriately and quickly to potential issues. Uh, and it, it, you know, brings, uh, brings us back to the importance of, um, a strong compliance program and, and particularly the, um, sort of internal reporting, um, speak up, uh, culture, and then, uh, an adequately resourced and, and competent allegation management process, uh, so that, um, the company's not losing time with its own triage process before issues even make their way to an external firm for, for that firm's help with the issues. Joshua, I have viewed the decision to self-disclose to the Department of Justice, at least in the FCPA world, as one of the most difficult decisions a board of directors may face. And uh, one of the dialogues that I've seen over the past several years is something along the lines of, has the DOJ incentivized companies enough to do so? And I'm going to maybe start with the FCPA pilot program. You may even look further back. But certainly with a pilot program, there were financial incentives put in place with potential discounts that was formalized in the FCPA corporate uh, enforcement program um, 
announced by Rod Rosenstein. And then, once again, uh, Kenneth Polite and Lisa Monaco expanded that with the uh, corporate enforcement policy or program, uh, I guess, policy in January of 2023. And then the discount pilot programs under um, clawbacks and um, disin, uh, consequence management so that there are a variety of packages and potential incentives. Uh, have the incentives moved far enough along uh, with a potential 75% discount off the low range to not warrant that significant discussion? Because I think the discussion's always warranted at the board level, but really to make that in many ways, very difficult decision. It is a difficult decision. Uh, it'll always be a difficult judgment. Uh, DOJ is definitely increasing incentives from all the programs you just described. Uh, do that. Uh, I mean, look, they've been clear now. It's clear in the policy. There's, you know, companies can get a presumption of a declination uh, if they voluntarily self-disclose, they cooperate fully, and they make timely and appropriate remediation. Uh, now, you know, what satisfies uh, DOJ, and because it's their view ultimately that that is determinative as to whether the um, company has, has met all those elements, uh, it is a case-by-case -case analysis. Uh, and, and so that will always be an issue that that internal decision makers who are wrestling with self-disclosure question um, have to have to grapple with. Uh, but you know, in addition to the incentives, which are which are greater now, companies also have to consider that there are now so many more ways that that their internal problems could come to light if they don't uh, make a disclosure uh, between um, the. The various reporting channels, um, the the you know potential for competitors to come forward, um, the whistleblower programs, uh, the use of social media, um, the increased enforcement activities by DOJ's overseas counterparts, um, all, all of this you know creates a downside risk for uh, deciding not to disclose and means increased uncertainty, which which companies don't like. Um, but there's no magic bullet when, when dealing with these issues uh, that, you know, companies need to investigate, understand the facts, move as quickly as they can, and then, and then make a decision based on all the information uh, that they have, the best decision in the best interest of the company, um, given the information that they have. And it's always going to be a difficult judgment. Just in October of 2023, Deputy Attorney General Monaco announced the new safe harbor policy for mergers and acquisitions under the FCPA. I wanted to maybe ask your take on that. I saw that policy as a continuation of something that started at least in 2008 with what I call a Halliburton opinion release, because I was with Halliburton, so that's what we all called it. But uh, also uh, the 2012 FCPA guidance first edition talked about uh, a safe harbor, uh, and then that was brought forward as well. Uh, do you view this policy as a fundamental change, a continuation, or perhaps something different? I see it as a continuation. Uh, it, it, it 
and we we put the firm put out a piece. Uh, I'll make a plug for that uh, at the time um, that the policy was announced, uh, and you know we viewed it as um, working to integrate the the voluntary self disclosure uh, and presumption of declination um, approach that I was just describing into the into the M and A context um, by setting the safe har- harbor period. Uh, you know, one of the things we noted in the piece is that there are still some questions that might give companies pause, particularly around the the feasibility of completing due diligence and remediation in the prescribed timelines. Uh, but but to answer your your overarching question, fundamentally, I see it as a, a continuation of the the historical efforts um, as going back to at least two thousand eight. Uh, Josh, we've talked a lot in this podcast about the investigative aspect, both in house and ex- as external counsel. I'd like to turn now to the remediation component of uh, either the uh, corporate enforcement policy or anything else you might want to bring it under. And why is that so significant in helping a company avoid a monitorship if the company is going through their own FCPA enforcement process? Look, you know, DOJ is is increasingly um, sophisticated about these uh, remediation issues, and that's an opportunity for companies who, who may find themselves engaging with DOJ uh, to take advantage of the fact that there are prosecutors who are more knowledgeable about compliance uh, on the other side of the table. Uh, look, the head of the fraud section is a former chief compliance officer. He's hired others with in-house experience. Uh, what, what we try to do is when reporting on investigative findings as part of cooperation with DOJ to at the same time, engage on compliance and controls issues uh, to talk about that part of the analysis, um, what the ramifications are uh, of the, the you know misconduct findings for improving compliance and controls. This is now uh, part of uh, the standard attachment C uh, that DOJ uses uh, in in FCPA resolutions and this emphasis on a root cause analysis. Uh, so it's been the case for, you know, many years that that companies work to remediate as they go as part of their cooperation um, if they're under investigation. Uh, but there's really an opportunity for each of those touch points in updating on misconduct investigation to uh, tie off with a focus on compliance and controls as well. And, and that, uh, you know, working that vein over several years, which is what these investigations often take, um, will uh, put the company in a much better position when it comes time to talk resolution. They're not introducing the compliance program and improvements uh, for the first time in that in those end game discussions. Josh, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, the firm, what might be the best place or places for them to go? Uh, MillerChevalier.com. 
uh, has um, great resources for people who want more information, uh, firm publications, uh, news and events, and profiles of the of the great lawyers at the firm I mentioned, uh, as well as myself. Josh, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. I hope we can continue this conversation. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the time and the opportunity to be on the podcast. As I said on the opening of this podcast, this month's sponsor is Ethico. And Ethico will provide compliance champions like yourself with an ethics and compliance optimization system to turn goals and guidelines into real ROI for your compliance program. To learn more, go to ethico.com backslash CPN and a special white paper offer. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.